0: Well, let me draw your attention now once again to the passage that I read to you earlier, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the American Civil War, and you know that it was fought between the North and the South, and the Northerners called the Southerners rebels, And the Southerners refer to the Northern soldiers as Yankees. And at the beginning of the war, there was a man, a young Southern soldier by the name of William Nugent, and um, he wrote something in his diary. Thankfully, we have the diaries of many soldiers and gives us a glimpse of their attitudes and their situations, their sufferings. But William Nugent wrote this at the beginning of the war in his diary. He said, I feel that I would like to shoot a Yankee. And yet, I know that this would not be in harmony with the spirit of Christianity. Well, you see, the Lord Jesus in the, the passage before us, he describes the spirit of Christianity, he describes the ethic of the kingdom, the ethic of kingdom citizens, of Christian people. He describes the driving force in the hearts of his people. I won't read through this section, but you see it summarized in verse 27. But I say to you, uh, rather verse uh, 20, yes, 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So we Christians, not only do we not shoot our enemies, but we love them. That's the standard Jesus sets. Now before we get into this, let me make three introductory comments. The first is that this is unavoidable. Jesus says, love your enemies. This is unavoidable. You can't get away from this if you're a Christian. You can't. And you shouldn't try and wriggle out of it. Sometimes when we find a command that we think to be problematic, we try to find some exception to the rule and hopefully that will exempt us from obedience. I remember years ago, many years ago now, I spoke at a a youth conference and one of the messages was on obedience to parents. I'm speaking to a camp full of Of teenagers and telling them that, well, the Bible says you need to obey your parents. And inevitably, one of the teens comes up with the inevitable question. So you say we must obey our parents. What if they tell us to kill somebody? Now, there's a reason to raise that kind of uh, unlikely scenario. And the reason you raise that is because, hopefully, that blunts the force of the command and justifies pervasive disobedience to that command. It's not just teenagers who do that kind of thing. We've seen that kind of thing done recently, as Christians in southern Ontario have done the same kind of thing in order that they might blunt the clarity of the biblical command to obey the government. But you see, this is a command from the Lord Jesus. Love your enemies. And so we mustn't try and wriggle out of it, even though there are many difficulties involved in it that we might not be able to work out just yet. But the command is there, and we need to obey. The second thing, by way of introduction, is that this is tough. It's not easy to love your enemies. Some years ago, I was uh, chatting with uh, a group of Christian pastors, talking over lunch, and they were living in a Muslim country. And they were living in this Muslim country where Christians were oppressed. And these pastors, and remember these are Christian pastors who week by week are preaching the word, and they said quite openly that they themselves not not to mention the people in the churches but they themselves found it difficult to be concerned about the salvation of the oppressive regime of the muslims who are oppressing them they found it difficult to be genuinely not to mention passionately concerned about the salvation of the well the enemy so it's really difficult The Christian ethical teaching is difficult. The standards that Jesus sets for us are difficult to reach. G.K. Chesterton, who was uh, a Catholic, said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, that is, lacking in something. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and been left untried. So this is the danger for us, or another danger. We might find this very difficult and say, well, I can't do it. The enemies are too vile and I'm too weak, so let me just go on as I have done. So this is unavoidable. We have to do it. It is tough and we recognize that it is. Thirdly, it's important. It's really important that we obey this. And it's important for several reasons, not the least of which is that it's a command of God. But it's also important because it is often a key to Christian witness. It's often a key to Christian witness. For instance, I know know a young man, I knew a young man years ago in in high school. He was a high school student. He was a Christian. And uh, he was crossing a field one day. And he spotted some fellow students who were not Christians and quite vocally opposed to Christianity, and he decided that he was going to walk across the field to go and hopefully have a word of witness with them. And as he did, when he got close, they spotted him, and they began to pick up rocks and stones, and they began to hurl it at him. And he chose that he would not run, nor would he hurl the stones back at them by way of retaliation, but he just stood still. And remarkably, in the providence of God, uh, nothing hit him. And then, perhaps spotting that this was rather surprising, the young men stopped. And then he kept going and had an opportunity to speak to them about Christ. Well, the point is then that a loving, non retaliatory attitude can often be the key to witnessing opportunities. When I mean, you really see that in the first three centuries of the history of the Christian church. In the, the first three centuries of the church, there was terrible persecution, not pervasive, but sporadic and, and localized in different areas, and only on occasion was it widespread. But there was terrible persecution. One writer, one historian says, ironically, uh, the more the Christians were persecuted, the more their numbers grew Tertullian had it right when he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Another historian writes, many pagans became Christians only after seeing the death of the martyrs. And so in those days, as in every generation, a loving and non-retaliatory response to the expected persecution from the world is a key to giving opportunities to bear witness for Christ and is wonderfully used by God in bringing the persecutors to Christ. One, um, one commentator, one uh, church historian said that with reference to those first three centuries, The only innocent blood the Christians spilt was their own. So this is really important. And God uses it in wonderful ways to build his church. So it's unavoidable, it's tough, and it's important. Well, then the Lord Jesus says, love your enemies. What does it mean? Uh, What does it look like? Well, we're going to think about, first, the nature of it, the nature of this love, the reward of this love, and then the pattern of this love, and we'll spend most of our time on the nature of it. So, what does it mean to love your enemies? What's it going to look like? Now, we understand that this is complicated. We understand that this is complex. What is a loving response in Auschwitz? That's a tough question. It's not an easy answer. What is a loving response in an abusive home where a wife or children are being physically abused? What's the loving response? What's a loving response to a truly, not imaginary, but a truly oppressive government? Well, the answer to these questions are not easy. It's not something we're going to get into uh, in in, uh, this message these things are complicated. This command has a complicated response and a difficult one. But the command itself is clear, and the example of Jesus is clear. And so we want to do our best to obey the command and to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives to the best of our ability as God gives us strength. And Even though we might not be able to work out all the details, uh, we want to be committed to doing what the Lord Jesus has said. We know even that the people who do us harm, uh, they're not all cut from the same cloth. Uh, Not all who hurt us are the same and have the same kind of level of malevolence. And so, therefore, the response to each situation needs to be nuanced and tailored to that particular situation. So it is complicated, but uh, the Lord Jesus' command is clear nonetheless, and we want to pray for grace so that we might respond properly and be serious about putting this into practice. I want to also say that though it's a little difficult to say what this is going to look like, I can also very quickly tell you what it doesn't look like, what it doesn't look like. I spoke to a Christian politician recently. And he was a Christian politician who supported Mr. Ford in his policies during COVID. And there were other Christians who knew the stance of this Christian politician. And they inundated him with invective This, they felt, was their Christian duty. They inundated him with invective. They called him terrible names. They questioned his commitment to Christ. They called down God's judgment upon him. They prayed imprecatory uh, psalms over him. They gathered in front of his house, and they screamed at him. So one thing COVID did was to show us the wickedness of many professing Christians and how little they understood the love of Christ and how little they understood the passion of God for the lost. And they treated their friends terribly, let alone their enemies. So that kind of thing is just off the table for us. The other thing that I want to bring to your attention is a very helpful comment by um, uh, Warren Wearsby, whom I always find very helpful in his commentaries, very practical. And he says this about this passage. He says, we must not look at these admonitions as a series of rules to be obeyed. They describe an attitude of heart that expresses itself positively when others are negative and generously when others are selfish, all to the glory of God. It is an inner disposition, not a legal duty. We must have wisdom to know when to turn the other cheek and when to claim our rights. Even Christian love must exercise discernment. So this is very important that we understand that this is a description of an attitude of the heart. That it is a disposition of the heart. And not a legalistic rule. All right then, so now, with that in mind, what does it mean to love your enemies? Well, first of all, it means we do them good. We do them good. Verse 27, do good to those who hate you and they say terrible things, they try to take things from you, and so on and so forth. How are you to respond to that when people hate you and they do nasty things to you, and they say terrible things, and so on and so forth? How do you respond? Well, do them good, because that's what God does. I say to you, says the Lord Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Matthew tells us, and so we're to follow our Father, we're to be like our Father, and He makes His rain to shine, rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and His Son to shine upon believers and unbelievers alike. There are about 205,000 people in Burlington, most of whom probably are strangers to grace and enemies of God. But the fact of the matter is that today, God has made his sun to shine on all of them. And God has put breath in their lungs. And God has put food on their tables. They've all had breakfast and they're probably enjoying lunch. And why is that? Well, God did that, didn't he? And the fact that they're enemies of his and they're opposed to him and to his son... Well, he's still good to them. He's done good to them. He's doing good to them as we sit here. Be like that, the Lord Jesus is saying. You've heard of a man named Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens, among other things, wrote a book called God is Not Great. And he's subtitled the book How Religion Poisons Everything. Astounding. God is not great, and let me explain to you now how religion poisons everything. And then in December 2011, Christopher Hitchens was dying of esophageal cancer. And he, he writes uh, articles, and I think it ends up in a book, and um, he writes this about his suffering and his own experience. And he says this, My chief consolation in this year of living dyingly has been the presence of friends. It's very touching. My, my great consolation in this year when I'm dying is that I have friends. Well, I ask you, who gave him those friends? And you know the answer to that. And so God gave friends to this man, which was a source of tremendous comfort to him. Even though this man wrote a book, God is not great, and shakes his fist, in a literary sense, at his creator. Jesus says, you know, do good, just like your father. Hudson Taylor You know Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Hudson Taylor's great grandfather was a stonemason. And he was saved on February the 1st, 1776, on the day of his wedding. He was late for his wedding because he got converted. And his wife, thankfully, was converted as well. He became a Methodist and he became a real soul winner. And he loved to share the gospel with those who were strangers to grace. Uh, But it didn't go well in many situations and cases. And uh, a a biographer writes this. After setting up a Methodist meeting in his cottage in Barnsley, James himself was pelted with stones and refuse. I've suffered to some degree, but I've never been pelted with refuse. He was pelted with refuse. And one can only imagine how you would kind of tease that word out in terms of its actual content And that for attempting to preach the gospel in the open air. On one occasion, two men got a hold of him and wrestled him to the ground and rubbed a mixture of ground glass and mud into his eyes. Apart from the excruciating pain, says the biographer, and the danger of permanent blindness, it was full three months before he could resume work. The writer says he refused to prosecute them. Not, this passage is not saying in every case that's how you respond, but he is the Lord Jesus is saying that your response, whatever it is, needs to be loving. In this case, he refused to prosecute the men. This is Christ's love for the lost. This is a refusal to retaliate. This is a determination to do good to your enemies. And, of course, this is, this is not nothing radically new in the Bible. We read in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, if you see your enemy's ox wandering off in the field, or his donkey wandering off, well, get it and bring it back to him. That's what you do for your enemy. Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him water. Paul quotes that in Romans. So do good to your enemy. Do good to those who hurt you. I knew a young man in high school. His name was John Novak. I have have only two memories of him. The first memory is the fact that I broke my finger, punching him. This was an English class and I can't explain how it got to that, but it did. The second memory is playing floor hockey in the gym at M.M. Robinson and he just crushed me into the wall. And I got up immediately and I just took a wild swing at his head. And thankfully I missed because he was huge and it would not have ended well by any stretch. So, he hurt me, and my first and instinctive response was to hurt him, way worse than he hurt me. That's how we respond. And what our Lord is saying is, that is wicked. That is not Christ-like. That's not how Christians would respond. Our Lord is saying, don't lash out at them. Don't hit back at them. Don't retaliate. In fact, do them good. So they may do things that are nasty and harmful and destructive, and we're to be kind and we're to do them good. Now, when you do them good, it doesn't mean that everything's fine. No. You respond in a particular way and you do something nice and kind, But it doesn't mean that everything's been set right. It doesn't mean that all is well with uh, the world between you and them. It doesn't mean that you're reconciled. It doesn't mean that fellowship has been restored. No, there's still a fractured relationship unless there's repentance. But the good deed that you do might well promote reconciliation, might well move Uh, the heart of that individual might well move things towards the possibility of reconciliation. For instance, let's suppose someone, while your enemy is stranded, you know, you're driving along and you see this one who's done you harm and turned your world upside down, you see them stranded on the side of the road. It's a deserted road, it's getting dark and... It's not a good situation. You see their car is broken down, and, and they're stranded there. And this is the one who's done you just seemingly irreparable harm. And you dr- so now what do you do? You, you know, Maybe you drive along and wave and smile as you go by, because, and you think to yourself, what a marvelous providence. Hmm? You, know, you could do that, or you could do what Jesus says. Which is to stop and give them a ride doesn't mean that uh, all is well suddenly, but it does mean that you're obeying this. Romans twelve twenty and twenty one says if your enemy is hungry feed him, if he is thirsty give him something to drink. For by so doing you heap burning coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by do not over, sorry do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil. With good. Now, you don't do it so that you might heap coals of fire on his head. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is to be like Christ. But you do them good. That's the first thing. The second thing is you pray for them. You pray for them. That's verses 28 and 29. Now, when you look at this section here, and the Lord Jesus saying, when someone strikes you on the cheek, Give them the other cheek. What did the Lord Jesus do when someone struck him on the cheek? Go over to John chapter 18, verse 22 and 23. John 18, verses 22 and 23. So, you know the context. You know this is the mock trial of the Lord Jesus. And we read this in verse 22. When the Lord Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Well, when the Lord Jesus was struck here, he doesn't turn and allow him to strike the other. What happens is he rebukes him. He offers a reproof, and he does something so as to restrain this individual from what he's doing, because what he's doing is wrong. So the attitude described in Luke 6 is clear. It's it's loving and non-retaliatory, but that doesn't mean that on other occasions, when someone does something wrong, it's not the right thing for you to try and stop that. That's entirely uh, permissible. So as Wearsby said, when he's right, this is not a series of rules, but an attitude of the heart. Be loving. Don't be the kind of person who automatically, this was my automatic response, is to lash out. That's not how we ought to be. No. Respond by doing good. Respond by praying. And even when you challenge them, even when you challenge what they're doing or saying. You do it in a righteous way. You do it in a godly way. You do it in, uh, uh, in, an, in a non-sinful way in terms of the things you say and the actions you partake, you, uh, you, you take part in. Um, what, um, uh, what is a very good commentary in the Sermon on the Mount is um, uh, Martin lloyd Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He tells the story of Billy Bray, who's an evangelist in Corn- Cornwall in England. And uh, Bray, before his conversion, was a, just a fighter. He was just, uh, at the drop of a hat, would engage in fisticuffs. Then he's converted, and he's brought to Christ, and his life changes, and his attitude changes, and somebody he knew prior to his conversion comes up one day and just just punches him in the face. And Bray's response, Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes, was this. Rather than hit back and retaliate, he says, may the Lord forgive as I forgive you. Well, you see, that's the kind of thing our Lord is saying. Pray for these people. When Paul was attacked in Acts 26, verses 16 to 25, they discovered that there's a plot against Paul's life. The people want to take his life from him. Uh, Paul doesn't go along with that. He doesn't simply allow that. He allows the Romans, about 200 soldiers of of, of Rome, to protect him and guard him from uh, the evil intents of his enemies. So, again, this is an attitude that our Lord is speaking about. It's fine to protect yourself against those who would do you harm. But the attitude our Lord is saying is not anger, not bitterness, not a violent response, but rather be concerned about the benefit and the blessing of the persecutor. And in fact, pray for them. And the best thing you can do is to pray for them. So we, you and I here, so we know people that we believe have done us harm. So how do we respond to that? Do we we seethe with anger? Are we we eaten up with bitterness? Of course not. But that would be sinful. No, we pray. Among other things, we pray. We, We pray for God to bless them. We pray for God to help them. We pray for God to give grace so that they might see Pray for God to give grace so that they also might grow in conformity to Christ, and so on and so forth. So we do good, and we pray, and lastly, we we treat them as we want to be treated. We treat them as we want to be treated, verses 31 to 35. We don't take what the world does as our example. We don't take uh, how the world responds as our example, but rather we we treat them as we want to be treated. Well how do you want people to treat you? Christians and enemies, how do you want people to treat you? Well you want you want them to be patient when you don't understand. You want them to be kind to you when you're in need. You want them to be gentle with you when you're hurting. You want them to be self-controlled when they're upset with you. You want them to be faithful to you and loyal to you uh, for the rest of your relationship. You want them to not slander you uh, when they're talking about you behind your back. You want them to be humble, humble enough to apologize to you when they've done you wrong. You want all these things. Well, I want all these things. So, that's then how we treat others. That's how we respond to them. Our Lord says, treat others that way, the way you want them to treat you. And by the way, these virtues that I've mentioned, they're all from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So that's the nature of this love. Now, the second thing is the reward of this love. We've talked briefly about the nature and now the reward. Verse 35 says this. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. The Christian life is very difficult, not least because of the things people do to us. But the fact of the matter is, and our Lord's reminding us of this, there is glory ahead, and that changes everything. Remember 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Christians always remember, when they're persecuted, it will all be worth it when you get to Glory. The Romans were astonished at this. Diocletian, who was one of the Roman emperors who persecuted the Christians, he said, as a rule, the Christians are only too happy to die. And so they persecuted, they put Christians to death, and it was astonishing for the Roman persecutors because they thought, what is wrong with these Christians? It seems as if they're not afraid to die. Well, why is that? Because they know what's happening. They know what follows. They know about the glory to come. And One writer says, the Christians imitated the many martyred Christians who preceded them and whose faith was unlike anything any Roman had ever witnessed. Paganism contained no promise that said, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And so we know glory awaits, and therefore um, it casts an entirely, entirely different light on our suffering in this world. There was a man by the name of Archibald, uh, Alexander Layton, It was a a Scottish covenanter. If you've never read about the covenanters, you want to do that. He was a covenanter, and he was arrested because he wanted to live and preach and be a pastor according to the word of God. And uh, the king of England and Scotland wouldn't allow him, so he was arrested. He was put on trial. He was found guilty, and this was his sentence. He was sentenced to this. He was to be taken, and one ear was to be cut off. His nose was to be sliced and he was to be branded on this cheek. Then, the next day, he was to be brought out of the cell again and this ear was to be cut off and this nose, this nostril was to be sliced and this cheek was to be branded. Then he was to be whipped, then he was thrown into a pit which was in the open air in the middle of winter and then, following that, he spent 11 years in prison. And When he got got out of prison, he was deaf and he was blind and he could hardly walk. Now, why am I telling you this? Because Samuel Rutherford, after this man had suffered those first few days of torture, Samuel Rutherford wrote to him. You'll know Samuel Rutherford, uh, the sands of time are sinking. That's Samuel Rutherford, uh, whose words inspired that song. So Rutherford writes to him and tries to encourage him in light of 2 Corinthians 4.17. And Rutherford says this, one day in heaven will have paid you and indeed overpaid you for your chains, sorrow, and suffering. Your sufferings and losses come to little when compared with the glory that awaits you on the other side. And so far we say amen to all these encouragements. But then he says something quite shocking. And I read it and I thought, whoa, I'd have to be, I'd be pretty nervous to say this. Rutherford says, I think... Remember in light of second Corinthians 4:17 he says i think you could wish for more ears to give than you have done so glorious will your reward be you could almost wish that you had more ears for them to cut off extraordinary but you see this is how astounding is the glory that awaits us that the most vile opposition and persecution and the most terrible suffering doesn't hold a candle to the glory that awaits. That's what our Lord's saying. He's saying, yes, you know, you may suffer. And so many Christians have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood, people like us. But the glory awaits. Your reward, says Jesus, is great. And talk about understatement. That's the second thing. Thirdly, the pattern of love. The pattern of love. The, the pattern, verses 32 to 36, the pattern of love is not the world. Even even sinners, they love people who love them. And so on and so forth. But they're not the pattern. They're not the standard for us. You know, we're Christians, you see. And we're to love as Christ loves. And Christ loves... Is absolutely stunning. You gaze at the cross to understand Christ's love. You listen to him on the cross to understand Christ's love. You learn about who we are and know that he still loves us. And that's how you learn about his love. And so, love as I have loved you, says the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how everybody's going to know that you belong to me, because you love one another. That's John 13, verses 34 and 35. So love as I have loved. And when we love, when we forgive, and when we um, don't retaliate, and when we love our enemies, we're demonstrating family resemblance. We're demonstrating that we're like our father and we're like our elder brother. So the bar for us is set very, very high. The standard that we have in terms of how we respond to those who harm us and do us evil, the standard is a divine standard. We have to be like Jesus. So if you get pushed into the wall, you're not allowed to just lash back at somebody. You're not allowed to do that. What you do is you read the gospel, and you read especially the passion narratives, and you watch the Lord Jesus, and you follow him. That's the pattern. Now then, very quickly, three lessons, three lessons, and then we're, then we're finished. The first lesson is make sure that you're not an enemy of God. Make sure you're not an enemy of God. So many of those who are enemies of Christians, it's because they're enemies of God. And maybe your hostility towards Christians, and maybe you feel some hostility towards Christians and you express it in persecution, maybe the reason that is, maybe Christians bother you so much because they represent the God whom you hate. But you need to make sure you're, you're not an enemy of God. And you need to know that there's no neutrality with God. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you say, well, I, I you know... I, I don't have any issues with God. I just, I just don't love Him. But remember, the Bible says, pronounces an anathema on those who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. God will judge you if you don't love Christ. And and you're not neutral. The Bible says there's no, there are no neutrals in this world. There's no, you're not a spiritual Switzerland. You know, I'm not fighting on this side, I'm not fighting on that side, I'm just in the middle. The Bible says, no, no, you're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. Now the Lord Jesus invites you to be a friend of God. And the Lord Jesus says in John 15, 14, you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And he commands you to believe in him. He commands you to trust him for your salvation. When you're when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're forgiven and you're, you're cleansed and you're made a friend of God and a friend of God forever. So you see, you need to make sure that you're not an enemy of God. You're not an enemy of God by becoming a Christian, becoming a friend of the Lord. That's the first thing. First lesson. Second lesson. Make sure that you embrace the sovereignty of God. Make sure that you embrace the sovereignty of God. You see, when you know that when people perpetrate evil against you, God works it for good. When you know that, that changes everything. When you know the truth of Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things out for the counsel of his will, or Romans 8.28, that God everything works for good for those who love God, or you know the truth of Genesis 50, verse 20, that Uh, Joseph says, well, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. When you know this, when you embrace, I mean, really believe in the depths of your heart, the sovereignty of God, it becomes easier. It's not easy, but it becomes easier to do what our Lord is saying. When you know that all the terrible things people plan and do and say will be used by God for your good, when you know that, when you know that... uh, like, you know, Balaam tried to curse the people of God and God made sure that they were blessed. That's what will happen with you. People try and curse you. And you, you have a God who makes sure that everything that happens to you is ultimately for your good. When you know that, it changes everything. When you see God's hand in their actions, and yes, you know, maybe there's, this was a nasty thing this individual did. When you see God's hand even in that action. It changes your perspective. It makes it easier to just to be at peace within. It makes it easier to resist the temptation to be bitter. It makes it easier to not look for ways to retaliate. To retaliate. It makes it easier to not dwell on this all the time so that you feed the bitterness and cultivate anger. Because, you see, you actually know and believe that, you know, God's working this for my good. And I can actually see how it's being worked out. And frankly, as a church, we've experienced this. We've seen how good the Lord has been to us. We've seen how he's he's worked things out for our benefit. And so shame on us. Shame on me if I'm bitter. No, I can see God's hand in this, you see. Andrew Bonner writes, it is in order to attain some great end that he sends that agonizing pain. Otherwise, he would no more have sent it than a tender mother would put her babe on the rack. Love will not wrong us. There shall be no needless suffering. So you see God's hand, and you know he's not wronging us. And this is not needless suffering. This is for my benefit. And ultimately then, of course, for his glory. And so then to respond properly to this command uh, moves in the direction of being easier. That's the second thing. Make sure you embrace the sovereignty of God. And lastly, make sure you're strengthened by the Spirit of God. Because at the end of the day, no matter what, what, no matter what else may be true, it's not easy. It's not easy to love our enemies. And we can't do it by ourselves. But thankfully, we're not left to ourselves. Uh, when you read, uh, we won't take time, but if you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, over to Ephesians 5, verse 2, Paul says, you know, don't be full of malice, don't be angry, don't be bitter, and um, let God be your example. And the question is, now, how do you do that? Because it's so tough. Well, later on in chapter 5, you come to verse 18, where he says, don't be drunk with the spirit with, with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. that's how you obey all these practical commands in Ephesians 4-6 to with the help of the Spirit. And so how do you obey this when everything within you wants to get up and just launch with the help of the Spirit? As you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the Spirit helps you and you'll do it for His glory. May God bless His word to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're thankful for Uh, the clarity of the command and the clarity of the example of our Savior. And we pray for us, we pray for ourselves, pray that you'll give us grace so that we might put this into practice, that we might, in this way, be faithful representatives of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we sing in a moment is our prayer, that the mind of Christ may be in us and we may live it out for the good of others and for the glory of your name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books.